The Apostle Paul is Christianity's most prolific missionary. Through the years, folks have marveled at his brain, his vast intellect, his heart, his deep passion for people, his shoulders, the responsibility that he carried for the churches, his back, the beatings he endured for the gospel's sake. But never underestimate Paul's feet. Paul crisscrossed the empire four times. In the part of Acts that covers his travels, his ministry, 40 different cities are mentioned. His three missionary campaigns logged more than 8,100 miles. And it kept him on the road for over a decade. Imagine the stamps on Paul's passport. Oswald Sanders once said, Other missionaries have opened continents to the gospel. Paul opened a world. And this morning we embark on Paul's first missionary journey, which took him nearly three years to complete. We begin in Acts chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, notice the shift now. Until chapter 13, the headquarters of this Jesus movement has been Jerusalem. But now its epicenter moves north to Syria to the church at Antioch. And it's Paul who replaces Peter in the spotlight. Remember, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, whereas Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Antioch was the gateway to the West, and it now will serve as the hub for the gospel spread among the Gentiles. Verse 1, now in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. First was Barnabas who had been sent by Jerusalem to encourage these believers there in Antioch. Then Simeon, who was called Niger. The nickname Niger means black. Simeon could have been a black-skinned man from Africa, or what is today Nigeria. Then Lucius of Cyrene. You remember Simon, the man who carried the cross for Jesus? He was from Cyrene, again, in North Africa. Perhaps this Simon or the Simon who carried the cross witnessed to this man, Lucius, and he came to Christ. Notice, though, the role played by dark-skinned Africans in the early church. You remember the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, who Philip baptized, was a black man. Here, two black men helped launch Paul's ministry. Many of the most famous early church fathers were of African descent. Augustine, was black. His mother, Monica, was a Berber with dark skin. Athanasius, who helped defeat the Arian heresy that plagued the early church, was known as the black dwarf because of his dark skin and his small stature. The early church apologist, Tertullian, was from North Africa, and again, probably a black-skinned man. You know, it is erroneously taught that Africans were first exposed to Christianity on American slave plantations. Not so. Blacks were among the church fathers who laid the foundation for Christianity. The gospel came to a black Africa years before it arrived in a white Europe. Well, there were two other leaders there in Antioch, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this Herod was Herod Antipas, the man who had beheaded John the Baptist. He had married his brother-in-law's wife, or his brother's wife, Herodias, and he lived in open, blatant immorality. You remember Jesus had called him a fox. 
Herod and Menaean apparently started out either close pals or relatives before their paths split. Menaean's conscience was saved. Antipas's was seared. And last among the attendees at this prayer meeting in Antioch was Saul, who later, in this chapter in fact, will be renamed Paul. Now verse 2 tells us what they were doing. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The rest of Acts will track Paul's exploits all the way to Rome. Paul is going to shake the world for Jesus. But notice his calling all starts at a prayer meeting. These brothers had gathered to minister to the Lord. You know, we think of Paul ministering for the Lord. But notice first he ministered to the Lord. And this should be our priority. Did you know that you and I, finite human beings, can minister to the infinite God? We can make God happy. Did you know that? With our praise, we can bring him pleasure. We can satisfy and bring pleasure to the all-sufficient God. God saves us not just to serve him, but he wants a relationship with us. He desires that we know his heart and express ours. Here the church gathers not to seek anything from God or to do anything for God, but to just linger in the presence of the lover of their soul. They seek to minister to the Lord. And it was on such an occasion that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now the question arises, how did the Holy Spirit speak? Was it an audible voice? Was there handwriting on the wall? Was there an inner witness in the hearts of the men there? We don't know. But there is a clue. In verse 1 we learn that some of the men praying were prophets. And thus these instructions may have come by a word of prophecy. A direct message prompted by God's Holy Spirit. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. As we read read later of Paul's vast accomplishments, never forget that he was supported by a praying church. You know, some folks I know were called by God and just went. But Paul was sent by a local church, and there's a difference. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. This was the port nearest to Antioch. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea south of Turkey. And when they arrived in Salamis, the port on the eastern end of Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And this will be Paul's pattern throughout his ministry. In fact, he modeled it after Jesus In every city he visited, he preached the gospel first to the Jews, and then he went to the Gentiles. Well, they also had John as their assistant. Acts chapter 12, verse 25, calls John Mark. A lot of times we call him John Mark. Colossians 4, verse 10 tells us that John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. Tradition says that he was a disciple of Peter and authored the gospel of Mark. So verse 6, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, Paphos was the capital city of Cyprus on the west end of the island, about 90 miles opposite of Salamis. 
Paul and his pals had basically preached their way across the island. Now, at Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, or translated, Son of Jesus. Now, now remember, Jesus wasn't yet a Christian name. In the first century, it was still very popular among the Hebrews. This is why they had to differentiate Jesus of Nazareth. There were a lot of Jesuses. This bar Jesus was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Of course, you wonder if he was so intelligent, why was he, what was he doing butting up towards this false prophet that was running around? Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of the Roman authority on the island. And he was bright enough to call for Barnabas and Paul to hear the word of God. Smart folks do seek out the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, this Elymas is an Arabic word for sorcerer. And apparently, this was another name for Bar Jesus, Sergius's Paulus's spiritual advisor. And of course, this idea of politicians consulting a psychic is nothing new. You remember Nancy Reagan, Hillary Clinton as first ladies regularly invited soothsayers into the White House. It's sad when politicians grope for help by turning to the occult rather than seeking God for his wisdom. Here this bar Jesus knows that if his client hears the true word of God, he'll be out of a job. Real Christianity and the occult can never coexist. And so he opposes Saul, verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, and notice, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Usually the preacher opens people's eyes. Here Paul causes a blindness to come upon him. Remember, this is what it took for Paul to see the truth. Remember on the road to Damascus, God blinded him with a bright light. Now Saul does the same to this sorcerer. He turns out the lights so that the man can see spiritually. And as a side note, it's in verse 9 that Saul's name changes to Paul. Saul meant requested one. Saul was the great rabbi, the man in demand. Paul means little. And this marked a change in his attitude. He went from being haughty to being humble. He was now content to live in the shadow of Jesus. And then verse 13, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. They docked on what is today the southern coast of Turkey. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, why did John, Mark, leave and go back home? And we're not sure. It could have been the fear of persecution. Maybe the rigors of travel. Perhaps as a Jew, John Mark had doubts about preaching to the Gentiles. 
It's kind of funny, but the early church father Chrysostom said the lad wanted his mother. Maybe he was a mama's boy. But a more likely answer may be tied to the phrase Paul and his party. For up until now, it's been Barnabas and Saul. But it seems over the months where they had wintered in Cyprus, Paul had asserted the leadership. It's now Paul and his party. Paul and Barnabas eventually split company. This may have been the first crack in the breakup. Perhaps Mark saw Paul taking charge and becoming and became jealous for his uncle Barnabas. If so, it won't be the last time a person's envy gets in the way of ministry. But when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. There were actually seven Antiochs in the ancient world. Paul's mission originated in Antioch of Syria. They're now in Antioch of Galatia. Now, notice what happened. They landed in Perga, which was a beautiful seaside city. But there's no record of any ministry occurring there. Instead, they immediately journey 100 miles and climb 3,600 feet into the mountain village of Antioch. Why not preach in Perga before making such an arduous climb? Well, Paul later writes to these same people of Antioch. They were Galatians. And so he writes to them in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 13, and says, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. Some physical ailment drove Paul out of the tropical climate there of Perga to seek the higher ground of Galatia. At the time, coastal Turkey was known for a deadly strain of malaria. People who contracted it said that it was like a red-hot bar being thrust through your forehead. Some early church traditions say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was actually migraine headaches caused by his malaria. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul notes their love for him. He says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Some think that Paul suffered a sort of eye disease. Perhaps this condition was tied to his headaches and to the malaria. And it was triggered by the hot, humid climate on the Turkish coast. Whatever it was, something caused Paul to head straight inland to Antioch. Well, in Antioch, after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Telling a preacher to say on is like saying, sick him to a bulldog. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands. Notice several times in Acts it says that. Paul must have been a very animated speaker. Moved with his, probably walked around the platform and all. If I start walking around the platform, I'll get lost. But he motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And that he gave, after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. He's giving a quick overview of Jewish history. 
And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. When Paul speaks to the Jews, he begins with God's dealings in Jewish history. But when he speaks with Gentiles, he starts with creation and with nature. They know nothing of Jewish history. Paul's sermon here, by the way, sounds a lot like Stephen's sermon in the temple back in Acts chapter 7. And you remember, Stephen's sermon is what got him stoned. And I'll bet Stephen died thinking that his words had fallen on deaf ears. But God promises in Isaiah 55 verse 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word never fails. Don't you think that you're witnessing to your stubborn brother-in-law or your stubborn uncle or he just never going to hear Don't think that. God's word is powerful. You keep planting the seeds. You keep sharing God's word. God will take his word. It never comes back void. It accomplishes for what it was sent. And apparently there was one man in the crowd who carefully listened to Stephen. Though Saul rejected his sermon at the time, apparently he took notes. For here he patterns his sermon after what Stephen taught. When Paul gets to King David... He calls him a man after God's own heart. And then he says in verse 23, from this man's seed. And you see, this is the purpose of the genealogies in the early chapters of Luke and Matthew. You know, you start to read through Matthew and you get bored right off the bat. It's this long genealogy. Well, it's important because it traces Jesus's lineage all the way back to David. All Jewish history led up to David's seed. God promised a descendant from David who would be an eternal king. The Hebrews called this ruler the Messiah. He would deliver Israel and rule the world. Paul continues, well, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior or Messiah, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. Both the genealogies and John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And then verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. Again, he's speaking to Jews and those among you who fear God. Paul was speaking to Jews and also Gentiles, Lord Cornelius, who had rejected paganism and feared the God of Israel. They were the God-fearers. They worshiped God and had adopted Jewish morality. And to them both, the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Psalm 69 verse 8 is a prophetic cry of the Messiah. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. 
Paul is saying the Jews who read the Scripture every week rejected the Messiah of which those Scriptures spoke. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put, be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Even the crucifixion played out exactly the way the Scriptures had foretold. You could put Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 alongside Matthew 27 and every detail from his bloody back to the spikes in his hands and his feet to the soldiers gambling for his coat were all foretold in the Old Testament by the Scriptures. But verse 30 records the greatest miracle of all time. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you now, glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, Jesus was begotten or given life a second time upon his resurrection. And then verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He was spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Realize Jesus was the, wasn't the only person in the Bible raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, we remember, Elisha raised the widow's son. On three occasions in the New Testament, Jesus raised the dead. We just read back in Acts chapter 9, Peter raised a woman from the dead named Dorcas. But all these people were raised to die again. Last Sunday, I was with my dad when he died. I was there holding his hand as he breathed his last. My dad had been very unhappy for the last several months particularly. He hated the debilitating effect that old age was having on him. He hated getting old. And when he breathed his last, I was with him, and I, and I thought of asking God to raise him from the dead. But if I had, I think my dad would have slugged me. <laughs> he was much happier where he was. The last thing I wanted to do was to have him return from glory to go through this ugly ordeal of having to die again. You see, everybody God raised from the dead died twice. I wouldn't have wanted that for my dad. Death was delayed for these folks, not defeated. For all except Jesus. For Jesus raised from the dead never to die again. This was the difference. Jesus' resurrection defeated death once and for all. Jesus was begotten to unending life. His body never saw corruption. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this one is Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Obviously, the promise of Psalm 16 wasn't to David, for his body returned to the dust. God's Holy One is Jesus. He alone rose from the dead, never to die again. 
Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul's speaking to Jews, remember, and he tells these Jews that by observing their own law, they'll never be saved. We're justified or treated just as if I'd never sinned when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And his resurrection is proof. The fact Jesus overcame the corrupting effects of sin is evidence that he has the authority to forgive the penalty of sin as well. Salvation is by faith and faith alone in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Well, beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And here Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. The marvel that God did in Habakkuk's day was to use pagan Gentiles to judge his own people, Israel. But the marvel in Paul's day, which went a step further, was that he actually saved the Gentiles. And to the Jews, they couldn't believe it. Paul warns them, though, don't harden your heart. Don't miss out on this marvel for yourselves. For God's requirement to be saved is changing for all men now. You get to heaven not by keeping the law, but by having faith in Jesus Christ. All your good works are as filthy rags, the Bible tells us. We're saved by faith and faith in Christ. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, sadly, we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we learn that they didn't continue in the grace of God for long. For rather than continue in the grace, they began to add elements of Judaism as requirements of salvation. They forsook the sole sufficiency of Christ, and they created their own law, a grace plus theology, grace plus baptism, grace plus circumcision, grace plus Saturday worship, whatever it might be. But they created this grace plus theology. And that's why Paul has to exhort them in Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He'll write to them later to correct them. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. The whole city of Antioch had come out to hear Paul. And it was because of envy that the Jews tried to undermine his ministry. It didn't matter that he was speaking the truth. They wanted to derail his ministry, his popularity, because of their jealousy. It's sad when even envy derails a move of God. I like the definition, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. Then Paul and Barnabas, they grew bold and they said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. 
But since you rejected and judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. And now he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, not an obstacle. And now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. It hit the Gentiles. Man, God desires to save all tribes. He desires to save us. Salvation really is grace for every race. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Again, Luke is stressing that the Gentiles weren't saved by accident. It was God's predetermined will for them to be saved. The Gentiles were also appointed to eternal life. And then verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. The mob pressured City Hall. The Jews used their political connections to expel Paul and Barnabas from Antioch. They didn't like him telling them that their law was not important anymore, that it had become obsolete. And thus God's men split, but God's word spreads. That's how it always happens. And they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Notice that. They get run out of town, but it doesn't get them down. They shake the dust off their feet. They shake it off and move on. Hey, you'll never get shook up if you learn to shake off. In the words of Taylor Swift, when haters hate and fakers fake, you got to shake it off, man. Shake it off. Chapter 14. You didn't know Taylor Swift was a theologian, did you? Now it happened in Iconium. This is 90 miles up the road from Antioch that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. This was unprecedented now. Jews and Gentiles were being saved together. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Hey, I want you to hear this. The only thing better than going to heaven is taking someone with you. But the only thing worse than going to hell is also taking someone with you. And here these Jews are doing the latter. They didn't want to share God's favor with the Gentiles. And so they sabotaged their salvation by stirring up rumors against Paul. You know, gossip is a serious sin. Especially when it's directed at God's messengers. I'm warning you, sour a person's attitude toward a pastor or toward a church with baseless accusations and cripple their ability to deliver God's word, and it can cost folks their salvation. That's a serious sin. You should guard your tongue. Well, therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I mean, miracles were following their Their straightforward gospel, miracles were occurring in Iconium. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And Jesus said that this was the effect that the gospel would have. 
You remember in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. We talk about peace and unity all the time. But people, and people are ultimately reconciled in Christ. They are, but initially they can be divided by Christ. You have to take sides when Jesus comes into the room. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. It's one or the other. The gospel caused division first in, in Iconium. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Paul was booted more than a football. Booted out of one city after another. He was kicked out of Iconium, and now he moves to Lystra, 18 miles southeast, southwest, I'm sorry. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. It wasn't that he couldn't walk. It was that he had never walked. He suffered from a birth defect. Now, this man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. Now, what tipped off Paul to this crippled man's faith, we're not sure. Perhaps he had the gift of discernment or maybe a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. But whatever it was, Paul ordered the man to his feet. And notice, he leaped and walked. It was a miracle. Verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, apparently there was no synagogue in Lystra, so Paul goes straight to the Gentiles. The town had very few Jews, or even educated Gentiles, unlike the bigger cities. In fact, you've got to understand, Lystra was a backwoods place, a hick town. Kind of like Loganville. <laughs> the citizens of Lystra, they were superstitious. They were excitable people. They worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods. And they walked on pins and needles not to offend one of their gods. That's what was behind what follows here. Understand, the Roman poet Ovid told a tale about a couple near Lystra. The Greek gods, Hermes and Zeus, came to earth disguised as humans. Everywhere they visited, they were shunned until they came to a hut that was occupied by these two peasants, this couple. They showed them great hospitality. Afterwards, the travelers took the couple to the top of a mountain where they saw the region wiped out. But the couple's hut was turned into a beautiful temple. The couple became its caretakers. When they died, they were turned into two trees planted by its entrance. Now, this story is fictional. It was myth mythological. But the locals were steeped in this kind of mythology. Thus, they didn't want to repeat the mistake of their ancestors. 
And because of the miracle healing, they assumed here that once again the gods had come incognito. Paul did most of the talking, so they figured that he was Hermes, the messenger god, and Barnabas was Zeus. They didn't dare mistreat their divine visitors. Verse 13, then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Remember, with the Jewish crowd, Paul would start with Hebrew history. But with the Gentiles, he starts with creation. The creation of the sea and the earth and the heavens. Paul is saying, worship the God who made all these things. And I believe that this was the most dangerous moment in Paul's life in subsequent ministry. Forget the stonings he faced. Forget the beatings he endured, the jailings, the shipwrecks. This moment was Paul's greatest temptation. When explorer James Cook came to the Hawaiian Islands, the natives thought that he was their god, Lono. But rather than correcting their assumption, he played along. Oh, he enjoyed the ruse. For weeks, he was treated like a god. Natives catered to his whims. One night, he was about to take advantage of another woman when her husband snuck up and clubbed him over the head. The blow staggered Cook. He started to bleed and eventually passed out. And the islanders rightly concluded that gods don't bleed. So when James Cook woke up, they accused him of deceit and murdered him on the spot. Serves him right. Paul could have pulled a James Cook and enjoyed the perks. But notice what he does. Immediately, he sets the record straight. I'm just a man, he says. Turn from worthless myths to the living God. And this is why our most dangerous moments are not our times of hardship. But it's those moments when folks sing our praises and think of us more highly than they should. Don't be a James Cook. Remember, Saul changed his name to Small for a reason. Paul, his new name, Paul, was a constant reminder that life was all about God, not him. It's not about you either. Paul continues with a sermon about this living God who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Again, he's speaking about nature because he's speaking to Gentiles, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes for sacrificing to them. I mean, the crowd was in a frenzy. They really weren't listening to Paul. And that's when... Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, finally caught up to Paul. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, it's ironic. This crowd is one step away from sacrificing to Paul when his enemies arrive from down the road and show up. They, begin, they, they want to sacrifice Paul. 
These jealous Jews begin to mingle among the fanatic crowd and play on their superstitions. And it doesn't take long for them to turn this crowd into a mob, into a lynching. And you know, this happens more than you think. You know, today's media specializes in shaping public's perception. It's interesting how the media can shape perception regardless of the reality. They can take a person of stellar character and turn him into a villain. It's amazing how they can shape the perception and fabricate the heroes or the villains. And this is what happened to Paul. These pagans made him more than he was. The Jews wanted to paint him as less than he was. He went from hero to bozo in a few minutes. It was the power of fake news in the year 48 A.D. Paul went from receiving sacrifices to being the sacrifice. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, and imagine this scene, his friends think he's dead. They're in the midst of planning his funeral. One of them reaches in his back pocket and checks his wallet to see if he's an organ donor or notify the next of kin. They size him up for a new suit. When suddenly, Luke tells us, he rose up and went into the city. What they thought was a corpse suddenly staggers to his feet, brushes off the dust and blood, and returns to the city to finish his sermon. Talk about a guy with guts. I'm sure his enemies ask, how do you stop a man like this? The answer was, you don't. Paul was devoted and determined. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, it's interesting. Later, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of an experience he had when he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, Paul said he visited heaven and he saw sights that words cannot express. He wasn't even sure if he was in the body or out of the body, he said. Was it a vision or had he died? Apparently, the glories of heaven were too heavenly. They were too heavy for mortal men to grasp. But what's significant about Paul's revelation of paradise in 2 Corinthians is that he pinpoints the timing to this particular trip to Galatia. You recall Stephen saw heaven open when he was stoned. Perhaps the heavens also opened for Paul during his stoning here at Lystra. Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city or to Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. In other words, they went back the very way they came, strengthening the souls of the disciples. It's interesting, it's closer to Syrian Antioch to go east over the Tarsus Mountains. But they backtracked, and they did so for a reason, to organize the churches and to strengthen the new believers. He says, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And notice that. Paul taught that persecution is part of Christian discipleship. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. As Amy Carmichael once said, can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Later, when Paul addresses these Galatians, he speaks of his sincerity. He says, let no one trouble me. 
For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And he means there the scars from his stoning in Lystra. He's saying, if anyone doubts my love for Jesus, just look at my scars. Here's the proof. And one young man was definitely influenced by those scars. For Lystra was the hometown of a young man named Timothy. And it was Paul's future apprentice, Timothy, who saw Paul's faithfulness, even in the midst of persecution, and took up where Paul left off and became a devoted follower of Jesus as well. Well, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And remember in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were selected by the church, but the elders here are selected by Paul and Barnabas, the existing elders. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. Notice this time Paul preaches in the coastal city of Perga. Perhaps now the climate has changed, the weather's changed, and it's more conducive. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. They're suddenly back home now. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Paul's first mission trip lasted three years. We covered three years this morning. How about that? And they saw big breakthroughs among the Gentiles. And yet they didn't rest for long. They're going to be off again. But first, they have a pastor's conference, an important pastor's conference. They have to attend in Jerusalem. And that's what we'll look at next week. Father, we thank you for your word to us.